over. Nothing is lost. Nothing is wasted. In Jesus' name, amen. You may please be seated in God's presence. I hope we are all doing well and um, we had eventful weeks. So last Sunday, um, uh, we began a series. And um, I told you that I don't know how long this series will go. Um, initially, I thought I would do it for four Sundays, but now I'm almost at eight Sundays in my head. And um, we're just taking our time to explore the concept of church. We're going to run through how church should be, how, what God wants out of church, how things are organized and everything. Because last week, like I mentioned, when identity is missing, purpose is lost. So when we do not know who we are, we lose out on what we were made to do. And if we do not know our purpose, we misuse our potential. Because if you do not know what you were made to do, just because you can do something does not mean you must do it. Are you together? So just because a, a church can take it upon itself to engage in humanitarian activities like building schools, like um, uh, um, uh, building hospitals, does not mean that is why the church exists. There is a primary purpose for which the church exists. And when we know the purpose for which we exist, our potential aligns with our purpose. Are we together? And last week, we looked at the fact that the church as a, is, first of all, a gathering. It is a gathering that has been commissioned by God, built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. That he says, on this rock, the rock there, we looked at it, was the knowledge that Jesus Christ is the Messiah the, and he's the son of the living God. On the revelation that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God is what we build the church. First Peter chapter 2 calls him the cornerstone. He's the cornerstone on which the church is built. He's the foundation stone. He's the stone that also determines the alignment. That is what the cornerstone does. It determines the alignment of the wall and it is the stone that also joins others together so christ is what who has joined you and i together to worship in this place are we together and last week we said the church first of all is a gathering of sinners who have been justified we are sinners who have been put together you do not you are not part of the church because of some intrinsic good you have inside of you. It is not because of who your father is. It's not because of who your mother is. It's not because of the family you were born into. It's not because of what you did last week that you are part of the church. You are part of the church because you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. You were justified even though you were a sinner and you have been made part of the body. So we are a gathering of sinners who have been justified. And we looked at some implications. I said, because we are sinners who have been justified, when we are put together like this, there will be issues. There will be problems. Don't point a finger when there are problems to think that you are good. You are also a sinner who has been justified. Are we together? Number two, it is a gathering of men who are being sanctified. Inasmuch as we are sinners who have come together, we said the church is a gathering of people who are being sanctified. That is, God is perfecting us. We may not be perfect, but we are in the process of being made perfect. So what that means is that if you've been in a church for a year, two years, three years, when we look at you, there must be some change. There must be some marked difference. We should see the, the work of God in your life. Somebody should see you and say that ever since this person joined this church, ever since this person became part of the body of Christ he used to have anger problems the anger problems have subsided this person used to uh, talk to people anyhow they did not have respect for authority those things have subsided you do that when you are part of the church submitted to Christ and you are being sanctified and we said it's a gathering of the sons of God each and every one of us here we are sons and daughters of God that means that we are related the person sitting beside you if it's you may not be from one household, but because you are sons and daughters of the living God, you are related. That means you must treat each other with love and respect. What that also means is that if you do something against the body of Christ, which is the church, God will come for you. Are we together? Today we are going to explore further into purpose. And today I'm speaking on... Um, so we're doing the gathered people part two. Should be part, the gathered people part two... And we are speaking, I'm speaking on what I've titled, Gathered for His Glory. Gathered for His Glory. Let's say a quick word of prayer. Father, I pray that you grant me grace to speak as an oracle of God. 
Let me speak words that will bring life and transformation. I pray that the entrance of your word will bring light and bring understanding to your people. In the name of Jesus. Amen. The ultimate purpose of God in all that God does is his glory. The ultimate purpose of God in all that God does is his glory. The Bible tells us that creation shows forth the glory of God. The heavens declare his glory. Even in his plan for redeeming us in Jesus Christ, it was for his glory. Are we together? The beautiful part about the glory of God is that God can have an immediate purpose of doing you good. But even when he does you good, it is for his glory. So at the end of the day, whatever is for God's glory is for your good. And that, I want you to bear that in mind. Whatever is for God's glory is for your good. You may not understand how it works out. But once it is for the glory of God, it is for your good. And if the church is established also for the glory of God, that means the church as an institution is for your good. Do you get it? All right. The glory of God simply is the excellency of God's holiness on display. It is the excellency of God's holiness on display. I've said several times in this church that our God is a holy God. What that means is that God is different from you and I. And he is not just different, he is superlatively different from you and I. He is three times holy. That's what the seraphims of glory said. It says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole world is filled with his glory. The glory of God, to put it another way, is the beauty of God's distinctiveness on display for all of us to see. So when God's wisdom is displayed for us to see, the awe, the transcendence, all that you experience because of that that, that, that wisdom that you are seeing, what you are experiencing there is what we call glory. Are we together? In Exodus chapter 33, Moses prayed a prayer to God when they were about to move towards the promised land. And he says, Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, if I have found grace, then show me your glory. And God says that I would put you in a cleft of a rock and I will cause all my goodness to pass before you, but my face you shall not see. The request was a request to see glory. But God says, I shall let all my goodness pass before you. Because when the goodness of God passes, the display, the beauty of God's goodness displays his glory. Are we together? And, and even when Moses encountered that glory, the Bible says that Moses' face shone that the children of Israel could not as behold his face. But for us as a church, we have been called to a glory that is greater than Moses. We have been called to a glory that is superior to that which Moses experienced. We are custodians of a greater glory. And for us as a church, our primary purpose is to display the glory of God. Ephesians chapter 3, 20 to 21. Ephesians chapter 3, 20 to 21. Most of us know this. This is Paul's doxology at the the end of Ephesians chapter 3. He says, now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. That means that in the church, our primary preoccupation is the glory of God. Because that is why we exist. When we come to church, it is not so that um, uh, we can have community. It is good. It is part of why we meet. When we come to church, it's not that you come and find somebody you can call a life partner and marry. It is good to find a life partner and marry in church. In fact, we encourage it, but that is not why we are here. We are here first and foremost so that God will be glorified. He, he is the one who has gathered us. And he determines the purpose of the gathering. And the purpose of this gathering is his glory. Amen. Earlier in the same chapter of Ephesians, Paul is speaking about the mystery that has been given to him as a custodian of the gospel. And we read in Ephesians chapter 3 from verse 8 to 11. He says, To me, who am less than the least of all the saints. One of the amazing things 
when you read the writings of Paul, you realize that the longer he stayed with God, the less he viewed himself. When he started writing, in his early letter, he says he was the least of the apostles. Here, he's saying he's the least of all the saints. In his final letter that he wrote, he says he's the chief of all sinners. He is, he, the more he sees God, the less he sees himself. Some of us, the issue with the pride that we have, the, the way we see ourselves big and we cannot, we cannot humble ourselves, is because we have not seen God. We have not experienced God. You have not come to a place where God is real to you. If God becomes real to you and you stand before God, you realize that you are nothing. That is what Isaiah saw. Isaiah went before the throne of God. If you read Isaiah from chapter 1 to chapter 4 to chapter 5, Isaiah was declaring, Woe unto the people, woe unto you, woe unto you people that do this. In Isaiah chapter 6, when he met God, he says, Woe is me. Paul says, I'm the least of all the saints. This grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages was hidden in God. So Paul says that he has been given a mystery. A mystery is not something that cannot be understood. The Greek word there is mysterion. It means something that can only be understood by assistance from an external source. So Paul is explaining a mystery and he says this mystery has been hidden from all ages. But because he has been commissioned as an apostle, God has given him insight into this mystery. And what is this mystery? The mystery is that in Christ Jesus, he says, the fellowship of this mystery, which was from the beginning of the ages, has been hidden in God who created all things through Christ Jesus. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul is saying that he has been given a mandate to preach to the Gentiles, that the Gentiles should be part of the body. But not only that, there is a mystery in the formation of the body. And the mystery in the formation of the church, he says, is that to the intent that unto the principalities, the powers, the angels, the spiritual forces, the everything that exists, might be made known the manifold wisdom of God by the church. What Paul is saying is that the church in and of itself is an institution of higher learning for the angels. God has designed the church so that the angels, the principalities, the powers will learn his wisdom. And that is why God does not play with the church. Imagine, angels are looking at us to learn wisdom from God. You ask yourself, how is this? Because when we look at ourselves, what can we teach the angels? And that is why the church, that is why it is Christ who built his church. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 21, he says, For you know your calling, that's not many wise, not many noble. He says, don't think you are part of the body because you are wise. Don't think you are part of the body because of the family that you are from. He says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And he has chosen the weak things of the world to bring to naught those who think they are mighty. The principalities, the power, some think they are mighty because we've read that some have rebelled. But the Bible says that God has designed his church. Because if the principalities and the powers know, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, if they knew what God was doing, they would not have killed Jesus Christ. But God was teaching them a wisdom that you people are not on my level. Just look at what I'm able to do. I am able to gather sinners put them together and conform them to the image of the son. Bring them into fellowship. This is the wisdom of God on display. And I told you, if the glory of God is the excellencies of God's virtue on display, then the wisdom of God on display is his glory. Are we together? So the church exists for the glory of God. Angels are looking this Sunday morning. There are angels who have gathered to sit here and watch and they are learning the wisdom of God. Are we together? So when we gather like this, don't think that we are just um, a, a few people gathered in a room and what we are doing is insignificant. There is an eternal significance to every gathering that God puts together. But if this is what God has made us, and this is what God expects from us, how do we play our part in glorifying God in the gathering? 
We'll read two texts from 1 Peter and I will explain them. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 from verse 4 to 5. I hope you are tracking with me. 1 Peter chapter 2 from verse 4 to 5. He says, coming to him, the him there is Jesus Christ, coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. Then I want you to jump to the verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The two texts that we just read are actually saying the same thing with different emphasis. The verse 4 and 5 first of all tells us what happens when we come to Christ. He says that when we come to Christ, we are coming to one who has been rejected by men, but chosen and precious to God. Are we together? So he says that you also, that means we like him, when we approach him, will be rejected by the world. One of the things that I want us to get clear as a church, because that is one of the things that a lot of uh, times we miss, because as churches, we want to be accepted by the world. We want to do things. You know, we have to do this thing, we have to do this thing this way, so that the world will understand. No. If they rejected Christ, they will reject us. He says Christ was rejected, but you see, the rejection of men is not the most important thing. He says he was rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious. So we also, like him, will be rejected by the world. But in the same vein as Christ is chosen and accepted by God, we also are chosen and accepted by God. That is why he says, for we are a chosen generation. And just as Christ was precious to God, we are his own special people. Hallelujah. So when we read the verse 9, verse 9 is actually a summation of verse 4 and 5. When it says, but you are a chosen generation. You are chosen because like Christ also, when you come to him, you have been chosen by God. He says, you are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. His own special people called to show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I love the way the English Standard Version puts it. He says, you have been called forth to show forth his excellencies. There is something that we have been made that we must become. Are you getting it? God has made us something and we must become what he has made us. And in the process of becoming what he has made us, the Bible says that we are showing forth his excellencies. Of all the things that he speaks about, that there is one that becomes a duty for us. And that is the royal priesthood. Because being chosen, we don't do anything to be chosen. But when you read the verse 4 and 5, in the, at the end of the verse 5, he says that we are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, and we are to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to god that means in showing forth the excellencies of god we show forth the excellencies of god by offering up those spiritual sacrifices are we together so what does it mean when he says that we are a royal priesthood when we are saved we are not only made children of god because that's what the bible tells us as many as believe in him to them he gave power to become the sons of god but beyond becoming sons of God, you and I are enrolled into a priestly ministry as well. The Bible tells us in the Old Testament that the priests were put in place as representatives. So the priests did a twofold function of representation. They represented God to the people. So whenever they stood before the people, they stood as a representation of God to the people. But also, they also played a dual role because they represented the people to God. So when, when, they go, when the priest would go into the, the temple, he would have the, the, the 12 stones 
which represents the various tribes of Israel, and he is an embodiment of the nation standing before God. The beauty of this is that in the Old Testament, to be part of the, the priesthood, you must first and foremost come from the tribe of Levi. And not only must you come from the tribe of Levi, you must be one who is born into the family of Aaron. Because you can be from the tribe of Levi, and that qualifies you only to become a Levite. But to become a priest, you must be one of the sons of Aaron. And that tells you that in the entire nation of Israel, only one family could approach God. But the Bible tells us that when we are saved, not only are we saved, we have been given the right to approach God. We have been made a royal priesthood so we can come before the throne room of God. And that is why the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 4, it says, therefore now you should come boldly to the throne of grace. You see, for, for us as charismatics, one of the things, one of the, 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 the issues I have with charismatics is that sometimes we trace our existence only from the Azusa Street revival. But Christianity goes beyond Azusa Street. Right? There is, there is a whole track. You see, we, we as charismatics are an offshoot of the evangelical movement. And the evangelical movement was an offshoot of the Anglican movement. And the Anglican movement is an offshoot of the Protestant movement. Are we together? So we go way back. And part of the evangelical movement, to be part, one of the tenets of the evangelical movement is what we call the priesthood of all believers. We believe that all believers, you and I sitting here today, gathered here today, all of us have been called to a priesthood. That is why it does not make sense. That's why you have an issue. Your first response is, let me run to this prophet. Let me run to this pastor so that he can pray for me. When God has made you a priest and you can come to him yourself. We are a royal priesthood. You have an access. And the, the beauty of, the, uh, of it is that we have a high priest who also lives forever. Christ has gone into the heavenlies. He is there. He lives forever. The Bible says that when he says royal priesthood, in the Old Testament, they never combined the role of king and priest. It was always kept separate. But when Jesus Christ came, the Bible says that you have been made a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was the first man we see in scripture who was both king and priest. And the Bible says that Jesus is called according to the order of Melchizedek. According to the order of Melchizedek. And in the order of Melchizedek, it is backed by the power of an eternal life. Somebody say eternal life. That means he does not die. Our high priest does not die. So our access to God is not one that would fade away. Our access to God is one that we would continually have. Hallelujah. Hebrews chapter 7, 14 to 17. For it is evident that our Lord, he's speaking about Jesus here, arose from Judah, of which the tribe of Moses spoke nothing concerning, of which the tribe of Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And yet, it is far more evident in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who has come, not according to the fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. He testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And this is the priestly order to which we have been called. What this means is that as royalty, we can decree and legislate here on the behalf of God because we are kings. He has made us kings. But also as priests, we can represent God here on earth. Hallelujah. The reason why I'm hammering on this priesthood thing is because it is the one that is connected to how we can show forth the praises of God. And, and he says that we have been called for to show his excellencies by offering spiritual sacrifices. There are five sacrifices that we've been called to offer. I'll, I'll list all the five. I'll take my time to go through them in the next weeks. Today I'll look at just one. The five sacrifices we have been called to offer is the sacrifice of self. 
sacrifice of song, sacrifice of service, sacrifice of substance, and the sacrifice of souls. These are the five sacrifices that we have been called to offer unto God. Self, song, service, substance, souls. All of them begin with an S for easy memorization. So we're looking at the sacrifice of self. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech ye therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Hallelujah. So Paul is writing to the church in Rome, and he's saying that I am pleading with you, I am begging with you, and he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the message of God. That means the plea is based on what God has done. To understand the message of God, you have to go back to Romans 11, where he says that we are not saved whether we, we, because of the works that we did, but because God has had mercy on us. He says, it is not he that willeth, nor he that runneth, but it is the Lord who shows mercy. And it is because of this mercy that he says, I plead with you, brethren, according to the mercy of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. We have not just been called in isolation. There is something we have to sacrifice. And the first one is our bodies. Paul says that we must sacrifice our bodies. To sacrifice means to give up the use of something for a greater purpose or a greater good. That means there is a way you want to use your body. That's what he's saying. There is a way you want to use your body that you are not allowed to use because you have been called as a holy priesthood as a royal priesthood and the first sacrifice that god is asking of us is the sacrifice of our bodies we live in a world where there are so many freedoms people are told you can do whatever you want to do you are able to um, uh, do whatever makes you happy in this life but that is not the the faith to which we've been called are you together That is not the faith to which we've been called. What it means is that you don't do anything just because you feel like it. As a believer, that is not the life to which we've been called. You don't get up and say, this is what I feel like doing, so I'm going to do it. You don't go to places because you felt like when you go there, you will be happy. That is not a form of sacrifice. We'll look at it in detail. In, in 1 Corinthians, Paul is speaking to the 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He makes a certain statement, but let me give you a background to the statement. The people of Corinth were very weird people. And they were, they were weird like the way Toronto is weird. <laughs> right? Because the Corinthians were... A, cosmo a cosmopolitan place. They, they, they were a harbor city. They had three different harbors. And the three different harbors meant that a lot of business went on over there. So there were people that came from all over. It was a place where the Jewish people were. It was a place where the Greeks were. It was a place where the Romans were as well. So we have a, a mixed pot of people there. And that means there were all kinds of gods, all kinds of religions, all kinds of things that were going on. Um, a couple of uh, decades ago, they did an excavation of a site in um, uh, Corinth, right, which is around modern-day Turkey, Turkey, Greece, right. And they, when they excavated, it was a site that was about 100 meters from the Agora. Agora is just the marketplace, right. And up the hill of the Agora, they excavated what was known as the um, Temple of Asclepius. Asclepius is the god of medicine and healing for the pagan people. And the interesting thing was that when people, people who worship Asclepius had a way they prayed and requested healing. What they would do is that they would make a clay mold of the body part that they wanted the healing of. And they would present the clay mold in the temple or the, what sometimes is called the infirmary of Asclepius. And then with the clay mold in there, they believe that when Asclepius heals that clay mold, it will heal that body part that they have a problem with. 
When they dug and did the excavation, they found clay molds of uh, breasts, clay molds of legs, and you could tell that these are body parts of people who may have suffered calamities from war, and uh, army men who had gone to war and they had body parts chopped off. But the interesting thing is, a huge proportion of the clay molds that they found was human genitals. Because the people of Corinth were given to high level of sexual immorality. And, and a huge proportion of all they dug up was that. And this is a place, the city of Corinth where God has decided that he's going to form a church. And he's not just going to form a church. He's going to form a church that is going to be his temple. That's not just going to be his temple, but it's going to be the place where he's going to use to teach the principalities, the powers, the people that be, his wisdom. You see how impossible the task is? Someone's like, hmm, these Corinthians were wild. You are wild like that. We are, we, are, we are people who feel like, especially in the times that we live, in the, in the nation that we are, people take all kinds of liberties. We're, st- we're still in summer. We just came out of uh, June, July, Pride Month. We saw all the kinds of liberties, and some of these things have seeped into our minds. Oh, let people do what they want to do. Love is love. Love is not love. There are, there are, there are times in the Bible where God commands you, do not love. He says, do not love the world. That means there are times where when you display love, it is a sin. Are we together? Let me continue. So Paul comes to the church in 1 Corinthians. And the reason why Paul is saying all these things, saying there's two main reasons. He has heard about two things that have gone on in the church. The first thing is, there's a man... In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul describes it as a man who is sleeping with his father's wife. What that means is that it's most probably his stepmother because of his choice of words. Right? He didn't say he's sleeping with his mother. He said he's sleeping with his father's wife. And the church is quiet on it. That means there is immorality. There is fornication. There are, there are things that is happening in the church. And Paul says, all of you are quiet about this matter. Because in their mind... Love is love. People are allowed to do what they are allowed to do. That's the, first, that's the first issue that Paul is about to address. The second issue is that somebody has offended somebody in the church. And because of the offense, one person has taken the other person to court. And Paul says, how dare you? This gathering is different. We don't do things like the way the world does them. If there is offense, there is a way the world handles offenses, not so in the church. Are you together? Along this series, I told you this series I will preach a very long one. I will take my time on even how we handle offenses. Paul says, we don't do that over here. He says, how dare you, one person having a problem with another, go to the court outside the church. Go outside the church and speak about these issues. He says, how dare you? What? And, and you think that Paul and so you think that Paul would even side with the one who had been wronged. He says, No, why do you not allow yourself to be defrauded? Yeah. The first time I read that text, I was shocked. He says, Why do you allow yourself not to be defrauded? Why do you not turn the other cheek? Because Paul was just saying what Jesus Christ said in a different way. So somebody slaps you here, turn the other cheek. You see, sometimes we, we, because we, what we don't realize is that we have been so discipled by the world. So we don't know how to think as a church. I know my rights. I will not allow this person to have their way with me. Paul says, no, you should allow yourself to be defrauded. Sometimes you have to allow yourself, turn the other cheek, be vulnerable. Hmm. It's not a nice message. Don't blame me, I'm just a mailman. I'm delivering the mail. I'm just delivering the message. Then he comes to the one who was committing the, the sin, who was defrauding and doing the things. See, do you not know that anyone who practices these things 
is who shall not inherit the kingdom of God. That means you are not even part. Because to inherit, you must be an heir. If you are practicing these things, that means you, you cry, you are not part. But he says, such were some of you. He says, those who practice immor- uh, sexual immorality, those who practice fornication, those who practice idolatry, drunkenness. He says, such were some of you. So Paul's expectation is that if you are part of the body, your vices, the things that you used to do, we should say that such were some of you. That means it should be in your past, not in your present. Are we together? It brings me to the main text that I actually want to read. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. So, all of these things, the sexual immorality that has happened, and the offense that is happening, all these things are what is coming before this text. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. He says, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. That means that when, when the fact that something is legal or lawful does not mean it is right in the sight of God. Yes, you have your right to sometimes defend yourself. But Paul says, why not allow yourself? Because in doing so, you see, what you don't realize is that when you are doing those things, when you are allowing yourself, you are showing forth that God has worked in you, that you do not even allow yourself to fight for certain things, that you have become like Christ, just like Christ was on the cross, hung, crucified, beaten to death. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. This is how you can show forth the excellencies of God. He says, foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, and, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God has raised bo- up the Lord and will raise us up by his power. If you read it in the New King James and the Old King James, sometimes it gets lost on you because in the, in the Greek, there are supposed to be certain punctuations that are missing. When he says all things are lawful for me, and all, all, but when he says all things are lawful for me, he's actually quoting a statement in the culture of the Corinthians. Because they believe that once something is lawful, you can do it. And he says all things are lawful for me. Then Paul responds, but not all things are helpful. Then he says, you say, all things are lawful for me. But he says, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Because in the church, we are not brought under the power of things because it is lawful, but because Christ has commissioned it. So he says, I will not be brought under the power of any. Then they have another statement in Corinth. He says, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. What it means is that if you have an appetite and you have a means for satisfying the appetite, go for it. If you, are, you have an appetite for sex, go for it. If you have an appetite for anything, go for it. And Paul is saying that that is not what we do here in the church. Because they believe that Christ has saved the, the spirit and the body did not matter. So you can do anything at all you want with your body. Our sacrifice first and foremost is the sacrifice of our bodies. Then he says, he says, you who are saying that food for the stomach and the stomach... It's for food. But God would and but God will destroy both it and them. So their mind is that when we die, we'll go to heaven, we'll leave the body behind. Because God will destroy the body, He has no use for the body. So we can do anything at all with the body. Then Paul says, Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Your body is not for your desires, your body belongs to God and the lord for the body and god has both raised up the lord and will raise us up by his power this is what he's saying the reason why you should not live anyhow in the body is because god raised jesus christ from the dead in his body if god did not have use for jesus's body he would have raised jesus christ up as a spirit and would say we saw the spirit of christ but he raised him up in his body the disciples touched the risen christ that means god has a use a need for our bodies as well so you cannot live life with the excuse that god does not need his body 
you cannot go to a club and go and do all kinds of things on a saturday night and come to church because oh it is my heart that is for the lord the body does not belong to god no what we do with our body matters as believers what you choose to do with this flesh matters to god and that is why on the judgment day we will all give account of what we have done in this body he says do you not know that your bodies are members of christ shall i then take the members of christ and make them members of a harlot certainly not or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one with the body with her for the two he says shall become one flesh but he who is joined to the lord is one spirit with him flee sexual immorality every sin that a man does he does outside his body but the one who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body or do you not know that your body is the temple of god who is in you whom you have from god you are not your own see we don't belong to ourselves so let us not buy into the 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 ideas of the culture once you have been saved you have been bought with a price you are not your own today's message it's like that you don't belong to yourself we don't choose what we do with this body this body belongs to god he is the one who determines what we do with it i remember when i was young i heard a story about a korean man he was boarding a train and they were gambling on the train and they asked him to come and join and it's like oh but they told him that oh the bible does not say anything about gambling he says yes the bible does not say anything about gambling but you see this body does not belong to me if i'll gamble and join you i'll have to play with my hands jesus christ must give me permission to use these hands because they belong to him Some of you, even, even the choice of who you marry, you make decisions anyhow, the choice of who you date. This body does not belong to you. If a man wants to marry you as a lady and want to have access to your body, don't go and ask your friends first. The first person you must consult with is Jesus Christ because the body belongs to him. Does it belong to you? The people you are asking, they too belong to him. How can a slave ask another slave what the master wants us to do? When you have access to the master. It says, for you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Like I said, when we offer up the sacrifice of self, we are glorifying God. That's what Peter says. And look at how what Paul is saying. He says, therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. What he's trying to say, what you are even doing. That's why I like what Paul says in Romans 12. He says, it is your reasonable act of service. That means based on all that God has done for you, this is just the sensible thing to do. And when we do so, we show forth God's excellencies because the world can look back and say that was I not rolling with this guy in the, back in the day? Did I not work with this person back then? This person used to do this and used to do that. But then you are showing forth that God's power is able to take a sinner and transform him. I always say the greatest miracle is not an eye, a blind eye being opened. The greatest miracle is not somebody whose leg has been cut off and God has regenerated a leg. That's not the greatest miracle. The greatest miracle that God does is in the life of a man who has been saved. Because for God to save you, it is, it is to bring a dead man back to life. And when we live for God, we show forth those excellencies. So today, I come to tell you, we have sacrifices to offer God. And the first sacrifice is the sacrifice of ourselves. We don't do what we like. So, in this gathering, maybe another church, they can do what they like. Railboat Temple, we don't do that. 
we are building a church according to God's standards and when we come here we belong to God we are a people that belong to God we are his own special possession he tells us what we do so you, you must live your life as one who belongs to another that's why you can't even sleep by heart Because God has need of the body. God has need of the body. God, the, the Lord must ride on you. One of the, 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 my favorite scenes in the Bible is when Jesus was about to ride into Jerusalem. And he sent the disciples to go to pick the donkey. He says, when we go, what shall we say? He says, tell them that the Lord has need of it. I came to tell you this morning this body that you have the lord has need of it god has to ride you into jerusalem some of you god has to ride you in prayer so you have to wake up stop sleeping god has to ride you into evangelism stop saying i am shy avail yourself god has to ride you in service here in the house of god don't say that oh i i, I had a long week i have to sleep there is work to be done we are not our own Oh, you know my, my my boyfriend says that if um, I don't allow him to uh, to for us to be intimate, the relationship is going to end. He doesn't see a future in a relationship because all of those things. You are in the wrong place, and you are in the wrong place. And if you know you are doing that in this church, repent. Your body does not belong to you. If if he says he has scriptural backing, tell him that you know what. I told you last Sunday that part of what God wants us to do, He has also outlined leaders for us. And okay, me, I can't argue it out. I have a pastor who can argue it out with you. Come, let's have the conversation. Pastor, here's my boyfriend. He says he wants us to have sex. I told him that my body does not belong to us. He says that, oh, he thinks we can do otherwise. Then we have a conversation. It will be a nice conversation. Are we together? You are bought with the price. You have been bought with the price. And it was not a cheap price. It was God's son. And he says he has made you a royal priesthood. And in your royal position as a royal priest, sometimes we say, I am a chosen generation. We are singing it. We are excited. We are a royal priesthood. And we royal priesthood comes with responsibilities. Offer yourselves. Offer yourselves. Put yourself on that altar. And you know the funny thing? He says, as a living sacrifice. Do you know why that's an interesting thing? Because most sacrifices are dead. They kill them. So when a dead goat is on the altar, it cannot move. But a live one will always choose to run away. So every day you must drag yourself back to the altar. You must drag yourself constantly. Your body will not feel like doing it sometimes. You drag yourself back to the altar. I am not my own. Hold yourself. You know how sometimes the tire goes by the neck and pull it. I will not pull you. You are pulling yourself to the altar. I must offer myself daily. I must offer myself daily. And when we do that, the angels are looking on in heaven. The, the, the principalities and the powers are looking on in heaven. They're like, look at the wisdom of God. Look at the glory of God. Look at the power of God that is able to take these rebellious people and they are able to offer themselves. That is why it says, now to the intent that unto the principalities, the powers might be made known the manifold wisdom of God by the church. And this morning, I came to call all of us to sacrifice. Next week, we'll look, at the, we'll, we'll look at the other four as we go on. Sacrifice of song, of service, all of those things. But for us, today, we're starting with our bodies. We're starting with our bodies. Some of you, as you are going to church, you must start preparing your breakup message. As we are leaving church, on your way out, start typing the breakout message. That I don't think we can continue in this relationship. 
Some of you, as you are going out today, you must start rearranging how your week would look like. This church, I've set, I've set an example for you, for you several times. For those of you who know me, you know the kind of work that I was doing earlier. On a Sunday morning, I had work. But money does not determine what this body does. There's never been a Sunday that I had work. And I said that because I had work. It's not that I don't have bills to pay. It's because someone owns this body. And the one who owns this body, if I give this up for him, he'll take care of the rest. And sometimes the, the way we act and the way we do things, it just tells us we don't trust God. But you know the beautiful thing about the royal priesthood? If you get time, read the book of Exodus. Those who were in the family of Levi and those who were in the priesthood, they did not have to work. God took care of their needs. When you sacrifice yourself for God, God's integrity is on the line for you. God will come through for you. There are times in my life where sometimes God has done something for me and people are looking like, you, it's like you are God's favorite. God is cheating for you. I said, see, we have died for God. Like Paul says, he says, we die daily. I want us to be our, our, our mantra. We die daily. Amen. 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 Let's rise to our feet. I know this is a call to greater. It's not an easy thing to do. But there is a price on our heads. And I want us to ask God this morning, we are asking him for grace. We are asking him for strength. To give us the strength to offer up our lives. To offer up ourselves as living sacrifices. So we must be holy and acceptable sacrifices. I want you to lift up your voice this morning. Father, empower us to offer up ourselves. That as a holy priesthood, we would offer up spiritual sacrifices to you. Father, teach us to offer up ourselves, our bodies unto you. 